The attack was swift and brutal, sprung with little to no warning. The company of Spanish soldiers were heading back south along the Santa Cruz River. They had been on a tour of the missions along the river and were heading back eventually to their base at Fronteras in Sonora. The only account of the attack was written 15 years after the fact by a priest who had not been there, so there's much we don't know. But either the captain of this company had moved ahead of his men, or the company failed to keep up with him. Maybe he went to scout ahead. Or maybe he wanted some time to himself to think about all the responsibilities resting on his shoulders. Or maybe he and the men had gotten complacent, momentarily forgetting the dangers all around them. Either way, they had broken their normally tight formation, which would cost the captain dearly. Quicker than we can probably imagine, a small handful of Apache warriors sprung out of the brush, the twang of their bowstrings registering to the soldiers simultaneously with their appearance. The arrows slammed into the captain, felling him from his horse. In the moments it took the soldiers to spur their mounts into action, the Apaches had taken the captain's horse and vanished again into the desert. And on the ground, in his dying moments, lay the 47-year-old Basque man who had carved the name out for himself as a miner, explorer, soldier, and presidio captain, Juan Bautista de Anza the Elder. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you're listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 8, Captain Anza, or Meet the New Bosses. To lead up to Anza's death and understand what this meant for Arizona, we have to take a look at the various historical forces happening at the time. Now, we sort of ignored events happening in the greater Spanish Empire in a marginally successful attempt to keep our focus on Arizona. I mean, after all, we are eight episodes in, and the country the state will eventually be a part of is still three-quarters of a century away from even being a thing. But as events back in Spain will cause a lot of upheaval in the New World for the next century or so, we need to examine what was happening back at the Home Office. And that necessitates talking about the Spanish crown. Alright, here is the Cliff Notes version of everything you need to know about the Spanish monarchy. When Columbus sailed from Spain, he did so with the blessings of Ferdinand and Isabella, who were respectively the King of Aragon and the Queen of Castile. Though married, their two kingdoms were still separate entities, two of several on the peninsula, I might add. Among the children of Ferdinand and Isabella was a daughter, Joanna, who became the heir presumptive following the death of her older siblings and a male cousin, because, heaven forbid, another woman runs the show. Of great importance is that in 1496, Joanna married Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, who also happened to be the son of Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I and a member of the Habsburg royal family. If you know anything at all about European history, you know that the Habsburgs are one of the most powerful royal families uh, pretty much ever. Rising from obscurity after the turn of the first millennia AD, the Habsburgs would pretty much run the Holy Roman Empire from 1483 until 1740 when the male line became extinct. But European dynasties being what they are, a Habsburg branch would still be sitting on the throne of the Austria-Hungarian Empire until World War I came along and upended everything. So Philip, called the Fair or the Handsome, is going to die in 1506. However, his marriage to Joanna is going to set the trajectory for the Spanish crown, because in 1500, Joanna bore him a son named Charles, or Carlos. Isabella died in 1504, leaving the crown of Castile to Joanna, 
though her father, Ferdinand, muscled in and appointed himself as effective co-ruler. Ferdinand wouldn't die until 1516, at which point Joanna took over his crown as well. Unfortunately, Joanna was also suffering from a mental illness, leading her to be dubbed Joanna the Mad. Her son, Carlos I, therefore stepped in to take over things and had his mother committed for the rest of her life in the Palace of Tordesillas. It's during all this that the crowns of the various Spanish kingdoms were united under a single head, namely Carlos. In 1519, Carlos learned that his grandfather, Maximilian I, had died. Not content with just being the king of Spain, he set out to have himself elected Holy Roman Emperor as well. And with a lot of money to spend on the project, he made it. That's why you can now choose to call him Carlos I or Charles V. This is fun and all, but let's hit fast forward as Carlos I slash Charles V and his successors enjoyed the enormous fruits of their empire, mostly including rich veins of silver. Also, as they wasted a lot of it on the various petty wars and squabbles that really defined this era of European history. At the end of the 17th century, the hand of fate fell upon Carlos II to succeed to the Spanish crown. There were only two major problems with this. Carlos II was only three years old, and he was physically disabled and in ill health most of his life. Some sources point to Habsburg inbreeding as the culprit behind these physical deficiencies, though that is far from proven. Since he became king before he could walk and talk, yes, though he was three, his physical ailments were that bad, this was not auspicious for Spain. But the important thing about Carlos II is his death in 1700. Childless, possibly due to being physically incapable of reproducing, the Spanish Habsburgs went extinct in the male line when he passed away. Before he died, there was a lot of posturing among the elite of Europe about who he would designate as an heir. Carlos II's final will gave it to a close relative, Philip of Anjou, who belonged to the French Bourbon royal family. That's all well and good, but Philip of Anjou also happens to be the grandson of someone else you may have heard of. King Louis XIV of France, the Sun King himself. Now, bestowing the keys to an insanely large empire that seemed to be overflowing in silver was always going to be controversial. But when the French Bourbon family got them, the Austrian Habsburgs threw a royal conniption fit. It became worse when Louis XIV decided to make moves to indicate that soon France and Spain would be one large empire. So between 1701 and 1714, so while Father Kino is traveling all over southern Arizona improving California as a peninsula, all of Europe was dragged into what is called the War of the Spanish Succession. The outcome of which is that Philip finally became Felipe V of Spain, but had to renounce all claims to the crown of France. Luckily for Europe, Louis XIV had died in 1715, so the specter of a strong France gobbling up Spain would not come back to haunt anyone. Okay, we have the Bourbons now ruling Spain, but what does this have to do with Arizona? Well, the ramifications of all this will take some time to percolate to the extended empire, but essentially the Bourbons wanted to take their new empire out for a spin. This new line of kings would institute a series of changes and administrative tweaks collectively called the Bourbon Reforms to better control their empire while simultaneously more efficiently reaping the benefits. Did you follow all of that? If not, just remember, the Habsburgs are out, 
The new bosses are the Bourbons, and they want to get the most out of the Americas. Okay, so back to the new world. A few years after getting settled into office, Felipe V and his advisors received a request from the new Viceroy of New Spain to conduct a thorough inspection and reform of the presidios that formed the northern line of the empire in the Americas. The Viceroy noted, quite rightly, that the presidios were costly, inefficient, chronically understaffed, usually hotbeds of corruption, and in certain cases, maybe even unnecessary. Remember a few episodes back when I mentioned what a huge money suck most of these frontier settlements were? Well, this is part of that problem. As you can expect, having a better handle on the finances and efficiency of the frontier sounded great to a reform-minded king. Permission to send out an inspector was approved. For this pivotal mission, the viceroy selected Pedro de Rivera Villalón, the twice-governor of Tlaxacala. Rivera, then pushing 60, had been born in Spain around 1664. We don't have a full accounting of his early life or even when he came to the Americas, but he had participated in a number of campaigns, including against Louis XIV's armies in the Netherlands. For his new assignment, he was raised to the rank of Brigadier General, so no one he would encounter could pull rank on him, and was tasked with handling the inspection and writing an exhaustive report on the Presidio's condition, including recommendations for improvement. Rivera and his entourage set out on November 21, 1724. He would spend more than three years on the project, eventually retiring to Mexico City in 1728 after riding somewhere between seven and 8,000 miles. During this time, he inspected nearly two dozen presidios between northwestern Mexico and eastern Texas, making copious observations and even instituting what he saw as much-needed reforms. When he arrived for an inspection, there was a standard format. Rivera would announce that he was the presiding authority and an inspection was underway. The presidio's captain would be sent at least 20 miles away so that any witnesses, officers, or soldiers could make statements without a fear of intimidation or coaching. Rivera and his posse would then open all the books and see exactly how much money was being spent. After that, if he felt something was amiss, he would call back the Presidio's captain, level charges, give the captain time for a rebuttal, and then dive into any necessary legal proceedings. He did not have flattering things to say about many of the Presidios he visited. At one, he noted that the garrison was, quote, lacking in everything, and wrote, quote, It was evident that the men were so ignorant of their duties that they did not merit what they earned, nor the title of soldiers, end quote. One more stop down the road would bring this chestnut, quote, The soldiers spent little time on their assigned jobs unless necessity impelled them to discharge their duty, when they did, they never defeated their enemy, but always retreated in shameful disgrace. End quote. A favorite of mine from yet another inspection is quote, Some of the soldiers were in such disarray that one blushed to look at them. End quote. The majority of problems stemmed from those at the top. Captains and officers were supposed to provide the necessary equipment for soldiers to buy out of their salaries but often they worked in collusion with merchants to charge exorbitant, and that's Rivera's word, not mine, prices for these goods, leaving soldiers both deeply in debt and deeply demoralized. The kicker is, whatever goods the common soldier was able to buy were usually shoddy and or defective. 
and in the case of weapons, they would receive little to no training on how to actually use them. Presidio captains also had long practiced a style of embezzlement by cooking the books when it came to the number of soldiers they actually had under them. As anyone who's ever been given a budget by an organization knows, you need to spend it all before the end of the year, or the next year you'll find your budget slashed. In a similar vein, whenever a soldier was maimed, or died, or even retired, captains would keep their names on the books to keep receiving their salary, which they then proceeded to pocket. After all, they were hundreds of miles from Mexico City, and is the Viceroy or one of his flunkies really going to double-check that random soldier Juan Vasquez was still serving at the Presidio of San Antonio de Baxar all the way in Texas? But as everyone who has ever run a con knows, if there are enough Juan Vasquezes out there, someone is eventually going to notice. Rivera certainly did. In his final report and recommendations, known as the Regamento of 1729, he calculated that eliminating all this graft and getting things working right would save the crown somewhere between 161 to 181,000 pesos a year. For context, that's a reduction of some 36% in expenses. It's also roughly 8 to 9% of what the crown paid to keep the lights on in New Mexico for a whole century. But perhaps nowhere exemplified the problems of Presidio management more than where Rivera rode into on October 29, 1726. This was the Presidio of Santa Rosa de Corro de Guachi, which, mercifully for me, went by the nickname Fronteras. Overseen since 1710 by Capitan Vitalicio, or Captain for Life, Gregorio Alvarez Tunion y Queros, this presidio in northeastern Sonora, roughly 35 miles south of modern-day Douglas, had all the aforementioned problems and more. In addition to the usual extortion and embezzlement, Alvarez was also essentially an absentee captain. He lived a good distance to the south at the site of a silver mine he owned, a place called Jamaica. At least that's how I'm going to pronounce it. It's literally spelled the same as Jamaica. He was also in the habit of using soldiers as miners and ranch hands, so keeping them away from the Presidio and leaving many of the surrounding settlements open to Apache attacks. Historian Donald Garate points out that despite having literally months of warning, Alvarez was at Jamaica just before Rivera and his entourage arrived at Fronteras. Like a college freshman trying to cram for tomorrow's biology midterm, he did nothing to prepare the Presidio for inspection until the very last minute. Rivera would conduct his review of Fronteras from a nearby mission for more than a month. However, it took less than two weeks for him to bring down 15 counts of misconduct, embezzlement, and fraud against Alvarez on November 12th. The disgraced captain was given six days to respond to these charges, which he did on November 18th. However, Garate who I'm leaning heavily on here, says the defense was long, rambling, supported by meaningless documentation, and probably lasted less than a day. As soon as he was finished, Rivera pronounced him guilty of two counts, stripped him of his command, and ordered him put on house arrest until he could be taken to Mexico City to be tried for the other 13 counts. As a side note, Alvarez would die in 1728 before the rest of the charges could be leveled against him. With this finish, Rivera then turned to the lieutenant accompanying him and declared that 33-year-old Juan Bautista de Anza would be raised to the rank of captain 
and was now the acting commander of Fronteras. Now, this is the second time Anza has popped up in our story, so I think it's time to flesh him out, especially as he and his son will be playing such a prominent role moving forward. Anza was born on June 26, 1693, in Ernani, a Basque town that sits in northeastern Spain near the Bay of Biscay and roughly a dozen or so miles from the French border. Though not large, the town sat on one of the pilgrimage routes to Santiago de Compostela. Now, you'll sometimes see it written that Anza was born in the New World to a father also named Juan Bautista de Anza. However, I agree with Garate that this is an error perpetuated through some misunderstanding of the historical records. Anza's father was actually Antonio de Anza, an apothecary who had married the cousin of the wife of one of his mentors. Antonio would also hold various civic positions in Hernani. Juan Bautista was the second oldest of five children, four of which would reach adulthood. We don't know much about his childhood, but since the really interesting stuff doesn't happen until he's a man and halfway around the world, we can safely gloss over it. What we do know is that in 1712, at the age of 19, Anza made the decision to head to the New World. We don't have an explanation of what forces drove him to sail halfway around the world, but his destination was the city of Culiacan in Sinaloa where many of his mother's extended family were living. The evidence from what writings we have suggests he never was completely fluent in Spanish. He may have only spoken Basque and some broken Spanish when he arrived in the New World. He doesn't appear to have stayed with his mother's family for long, because in 1718 we find him in the silver mining boom town of Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de Aguaje, southeast of Hermosillo, Mexico. Anza at this point owned both a store and his own mind, called San Antonio after his patron saint, suggesting that he had gone into mining sometime within the previous six years and had saved up enough money to buy his own operation. In early 1718, the governor of Nueva Vizcaya had asked for a general inspection of all mining operations to ensure that the settlements across the area, including the lawless rabble trying to strike it rich in Aguaje, were still paying their taxes. Chosen to lead this inspection was Antonio Bezerra Nieto, the Capitan Vitalicio for the Presidio of San Felipe y Santiago de Janos, which is the present-day site of the city of Janos in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. This is important because it's while working with Bezerra on this inspection that Anza would actually be invited to join his staff. This was probably some sort of militia commission as a sergeant or other low rank, and he didn't join the regular forces at this time, but it began Anza's long association with Bezerra and the Presidio forces. The next year, so 1719, the discovery of a new mine would move Anza to near Arispe in Sonora, which sits roughly halfway between Hermosillo and Agua Prieta if you drew a line between the two communities. And it's here that the intense mutual loathing began between him and Captain Alvarez of the Fronteras Presidio. Now, we've gone over most of what made Alvarez such a hated figure, but permit me to pile on a bit. The captain, aside from being hopelessly corrupt, was also apparently prejudiced against the Basque people, ignoring their requests and taking every opportunity despite them, which was rather unfortunate given that a good percentage of the people supposedly under his governance and protection just so happened to be, wait for it, that's right, Basque. 
Captain Alvarez also had the additional strike of an intense dislike for the Jesuits, seeing as they vocally kept him from being able to more fully exploit Amerindian labor in his various mining interests. This was also not a good idea because the Basque population in particular were zealous supporters of the Jesuits. Anza would become a perennial thorn in Alvarez's side, with the captain calling him both a miserable boy and a Vizcaino, or Basque, troublemaker. In 1719, Alvarez's brother-in-law, acting as Justicia Mayor, appointed another Alvarez crony to be his lieutenant. At this, the Basque in the region, headed by Anza, protested loudly and even proclaimed the crony was unfit for office by making the baseless claim that he was the son of a black woman. When the crony was officially installed in January 1720, the Basque in the region went into full-on sedition mode. By February 3, 1720, Anza was at the head of an armed group of 30 men demanding the crony be removed at once. When dispatches started flying toward the governor's office and the whole country seemingly up in arms, the crony decided to step down to preserve the peace. After this, things settled down once again into a low-simmering hatred, but Anza and his fellow Basque would be perpetually looking for a way to oust Alvarez. The following year, 1721, Anza, in his role as Militia Alferez, or lieutenant, seems to have taken on a retaliatory mission against those boogeymen of the desert, the Apaches. We know very little about this campaign, but Garate speculates that it is possible that Anza and his company may have ridden as far as the Chiricahua Mountains in southeastern Arizona. If it wasn't Anza's first time riding against the Apaches, it was close to it. He would become much more experienced at it before the end of his life. During this time, he also moves away from civilian-slash-militia officer to full-time soldier. On August 2nd, 1721, he permanently joined the cavalry. Well, there are some sources that suggest he may have gone to or been stationed as far away as Santa Fe. What is known is that by the fall, he was living at the Presidio in Janos under the command of Becerra. By the following spring, two important things have happened. Anza has been raised to the rank of Alferes in the cavalry, and he has married Becerra's daughter, Maria Rosa. This was not his first marriage. In fact, by this time he had already had two daughters, but his previous wife, of whom we know very little, had died. This is where Ansa would be in 1726, when Rivera came through on his inspection tour. Hanos was a bright spot for Rivera's inspection, and he praised it with terms such as the soldiers, quote, were so equal that there was no one among them who was not ideal, end quote, while Becerra was, quote, well suited to his position and ably discharged his duties, end quote. Anza and a company of soldiers then escorted Rivera to Fronteras, where a month later, in what must have seemed like sweet divine justice, Alvarez was ousted and Anza made captain. The task left to Anza after his appointment was no small one. The territory covered by the Presidio of Fronteras numbered some 100,000 square miles, stretching to the Gila River in the north, Colorado River to the west, Guaymas to the south, and the Chihuahuan border to the east. That's roughly twice the size of Portugal and one-third the size of all of Spain. 
Adding to the burden is that Rivera had specifically charged him with carrying out retaliatory campaigns that Alvarez had never initiated against the Saris to the south and the Apaches to the north. It cannot be overstated how effective the Apaches were as guerrilla fighters. Quickly taken to horseback, they traveled light and usually at night to disguise their numbers, striking and plundering in a flash. Small bands were everywhere in the desert, ready to warn others as they saw a hint of the Spanish trying to strike back. The Apacheria, or the land of the Apache, was essentially a 250-mile-wide swath between western New Mexico and eastern Arizona that extended well into Sonora, where Spaniards feared to tread. Anza would spend the rest of his life dealing with the constant Apache menace, leading a number of expeditions against them, or retaliatory strikes following their numerous depredations. Only those who have attempted it, he would write in a later report, know how difficult it is to apprehend the Apaches. Plus, he had to get his men into better shape. After being named captain of Fronteras, his first act was to leave, return to Hanos, and arrange for much-needed supplies. Over the years, Anza and his men would adopt a number of Apache tactics just to fight them. At Rivera's suggestion, the men would start carrying lances instead of their customary short broadswords to imitate and better strike their enemy. The men would also sally forth at night under the light of a full moon to make the dust their animals would make much less noticeable. There never would be a definitive battle where Ansa would vanquish this scourge or even temporarily push it back, but at least he managed to put a few points on the board for the Spanish so it wasn't a complete blowout. Putting the Apaches on notice that they couldn't simply walk in and take whatever they wanted anymore was also important for another project that fell under Ansa's jurisdiction restarting the missions in the Pimaria Alta. Since the death of Kino, his protege, Father Agustin de Campos, had been doing his best to keep the lights of Christianity flickering in what is now Arizona. Campos apparently had the same love for his flock that Kino exhibited and became fluent in the language of the Pima. This love would also lead him into some trouble when enemies, and Alvarez is name-checked here yet again, accused him in a paternity suit in 1711. He was later cleared of this after many witnesses testified that the child in question looked nothing like him and was of full native blood. But Campos stayed and kept ministering to the various Odom peoples from his base in northern Sonora. One historian has noted that, quote, Kino spent 24 years putting the Pimaria on the map. Campos spent 43 keeping it there, end quote. As early as 1715, Campos was petitioning his superiors for more missionaries to be sent northward along the Santa Cruz River and maybe eventually reach the Hopis in northern Arizona once again. However, it wouldn't be until a 1727 visit by the Bishop of the Diocese of Durango that three more priests were called to attend to the faithful at San Javier del Bac, Guevavi, and Suamca along the Santa Cruz. By 1731, Anza was tasked with riding up and down the Santa Cruz Valley to visit the various natives living there to ensure that houses were being built for the new priests and crops were planted to sustain them. The next year, he guided the three new Jesuits to their assignments. Equivavi, with charge of visitas at Sonoida, Aravaca, Tumacacri, and Tubac, he placed an Austrian or Bavarian named Johann, or Juan, Grasshofer. Grasshoffer would be dead after only a year, having fallen gravely ill. 
The other priest strongly suspected he had actually been poisoned by his flock, who found him less genial and given to gift-giving than Kino or Campos. Father Philip, or Felipe, Segresser von Brunig from Switzerland was installed at San Javier del Bach, though he would move down to Guavavi after Grasshopper's death. Segresser would fall seriously ill twice during his tenure, and would also suspect his flock of trying to do him in. The second time, he was nursed back to health by Anza's wife. Finally, a German priest by the name of Ignacio Keller was installed at Soamka. Keller is actually going to last the longest, dying in 1759 while exploring and still tending the flame for preaching among the Hopis again. We'll have more to say about him in our next episode. With these three, or I guess two functional, new priests installed, there was one small hiccup that demonstrates how uneasy the dynamic of the natives and the Spanish really was. Somehow, in 1734, Rumor spread through the Odom residents of the missions and their various visitas that Anza was planning a massacre. Anza and a company of soldiers had to ride into the Santa Cruz Valley and, with the help of the Jesuits, patiently coax the natives back to their rancherias. One source claims the rumors stem from Spaniards that were upset about the missionaries having unfettered access and jurisdiction over a potential labor pool, though really the incident is so small I can't find many sources that mention it let alone give reasons behind it. Two years later, in 1736, Anza was also called upon to intervene in a Jesuit affair that threatened to have the Pima up in arms again. Campos, though beloved by his flock, had a habit of rubbing those of his order the wrong way. When he took the side of a local governor against fellow Jesuits, he became convinced that his fellow brethren were plotting to oust him. According to his superiors, Campos had gone senile in his old age and had holed himself up with a massive body of armed Pimas to avoid being removed from his post. Campos claimed that it was the other way around and that rumors of him being forcibly removed from his post had put the Pimas on edge. The priests who finally did come to escort him away, including Keller, had actually brought chains with them into the church just in case. This move, which Campos said the Pimas were fully aware of, set the natives even more on a hardline stance, but he had managed to convince them to back down. Rumors chased rumors in an endless circle over the affair, and it's hard now to discern whose version is actually quote-unquote true. But what we do know is that Campos called upon Anza to come and help de-escalate the situation. A compromise was eventually reached where Anza did remove Campos, but took the sick old man into his own house to live out the rest of his life, which turned out to be less than a year. Campos specifically called upon Anza because of something that had occurred years earlier in 1729. At that time, Anza, who would always remain a staunch supporter of the Jesuits and welcome them to his home whenever they stopped by, had been made a brother in the order. Once again, we don't know much about this, and it is something of a puzzle, because the Jesuits then, as now, don't have a third order for those who don't take regular vows. And Ansa, the captain of a presidio with a wife and four children, could not have taken the regular vows of chastity, poverty, or obedience to the priesthood. But he did join the order in some capacity, which made his home as good a place as any for the troublesome compost to retire to. 1736 turned out to be a busy year for Ansa. After dealing with the Campos affair in the spring, his wife and he welcomed another child on July 7th, a baby boy that would be named Juan Bautista after his father. 
Finally, that fall, Anza would be called upon to sort out mining claims in a little-known place between Agua Caliente and Guevavi, after a man named Antonio Ceramea found bolas of silver in the ground. But we know all about that, and the nearby place called La Arizona, don't we? Moving on. I do want to touch on something fairly important for our purposes, because the return of Jesuits to the Santa Cruz Valley is not the only reason Anza had for venturing into Arizona. Like many Presidio captains of the time, Anza also had several business interests from which to derive income. We've already seen him operate a store in several mines, and this is not something he gave up when he became captain. In the upper Santa Cruz River valleys, his focus, though, was on ranching. During his life, Anza would own several ranches in what is now today Arizona. The first, probably started sometime in the mid-1720s, was the Guavavi Ranch near the mission of the same name, located near present-day Tumacacari. Operations were overseen by a trusted foreman named Manuel José de Sosa. Sosa and his family would be living at the ranch sometime after 1726, which Garate postulates could make them the first permanent European settlers in Arizona. That claim is contested a bit by historians Thomas Sheridan and James Officer, who both relate that José Romo de Vivar probably wins the title of first European settler after having his own ranching operation in the San Rafael Valley at the southern end of the Huachuca Mountains in the late 1600s. Anza would continue growing his ranching operations throughout his life, and at this point we are talking more about sheep than cattle, though he likely ran both. After Guivalvi, he set up the San Mateo Ranch where Sonoida Creek meets the Santa Cruz River, known to us today as Rio Rico. Next was the Sikorisuatak Ranch between Guivavi and Aravaca. Finally, there was the Sopari Ranch near Aravaca. Now, as many living in the area know, the Sopari Ranch still exists today. I've actually been there. I didn't realize all its history at the time, but now I wish I had. Random fun fact, at one point it was bought in 1950 by Jack Warner, one of the eponymous Warner Brothers of Hollywood. But getting back to Anza. In March 1737, he heard of a disturbance in the southwestern part of his jurisdiction. Apparently a man had come among the natives there claiming to be a messenger from the god Moctezuma. He preached of a coming apocalypse, promising natives gifts if they would worship Moctezuma, otherwise he threatened that they'd be turned to stone. His followers abandoned the rancherias where they had been settled, and a fear of an uprising sent shivers through the local area. Upon hearing this, Anza rode in with some men and found the messenger, who promptly said that he had been misled by the devil and that the whole thing was a hoax, I swear. The man, after being given the chance to confess his sins, was promptly hung from a palm tree. The whole affair comes off not so much as a rebellion, but as another look at how tenuous the quote-unquote conversion of the native population actually was. Later that same year, Anza hosted the new bishop of Durango on a tour of the missions in the Pimaria Alta, showing off the missions that were under the protection of Fronteras. It's around this same time that we also see Anza asking the Viceroy of New Spain for permission to explore between Sonora and California. Sirame's discovery of silver showed that there could be mineral deposits waiting for the Spanish along that route, something Anza made sure to point out. It would also be a good chance to further explore the area and convert yet more native tribes. 
I should also note here that even Ansa, in this proposal, states his firm belief that Baja California is an island. So you can see how persistently this kind of cartographical error hung around. The proposal ended up going nowhere, for now, but it's an interesting link between the elder Ansa and his son, who would eventually carry out this very task. In 1739, King Felipe V himself took notice of this revolt involving the messenger of Moctezuma that Anza had put down in Sonora. He wrote to the viceroy, ordering him to look into the matter and command and or reward Anza appropriately should it all turn out to be true. Unfortunately, due to how painfully slow it took word to travel between the new world and the old, the viceroy would never have time to follow up on this order. Because by the time he had received word, Anza had already met his end at the hand of his implacable Apache foes on May 9, 1740, while coming back from a tour of the Santa Cruz missions he knew so well. By all accounts, Anza had been an able and energetic administrator who was well-liked by his peers and even, according to Garate, respected by the Apaches he rode out against so many times. He had arrived in the New World as a young man who probably spoke mostly Basque and a little maybe broken Spanish, and had died a Presidio captain commended by the king himself. However, Ansa is often overlooked in the history of Arizona. Literally, most of the books I've read skip over him entirely. But that is mostly because he is overshadowed by his son and namesake. So join me next week as we talk about the younger Ansa and the world he inherited. Because unlike his father, Ansa the Younger will one day move north, and he, with many others, will become permanent inhabitants of a place that we now call Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.